Hey, welcome everybody uh, to Stacking Growth Live. Great to see a lot of familiar faces and some new ones. Outstanding, outstanding. Um, so today what we're going to do is something a little bit different. We're going to have a Ask Me Anything AMA. Uh, I'll let the guests uh, from Refine Labs introduce themselves here in a second. You know, this has been a crazy year. We're wrapping up Q3. We're heading into Q4, at least on the calendar year. This may be, you know, it depends on what your fiscal year is. And what we thought we'd do is just um, open it up to questions that you may have that you're dealing with today as you venture into the last quarter of this year. And what we see from a lot of customers, and I'm sure where you are as well, is either starting to think about 2023 planning or you're maybe knee deep in 2023 planning. So happy to field any questions about that as well. We have a bunch of questions that we we collect over time from other podcasts, from LinkedIn, et cetera. Todd does a great job of putting those together. We'll start the conversation with a few of those. But what we really are looking for here is active participation from all of you. So feel free to queue them up and start asking your questions in the chat. And we'll have you come on and ask that to the group. And I'm first going to go to Carl. Um, the question is not going to be, Carl, why are you not out closing the quarter versus sitting on a call with all of us? Uh, I will um, <laughs> make it so you don't have to answer that question, even though I'm sure all the marketers here are like, why is this guy not out selling, closing deals, getting the quarter wrapped up? But anyway, I digress. Here's a question for you. We're heading into Q4. From a sales perspective, like what's your mentality as you go into the quarter going to the last quarter of the year like how you drive an urgency where are you focusing what do you need from others in the organization for you to wrap up the year strong if you can kind of set the tone for this conversation and go through kind of uh your thought process yeah um i it's sketchy for me to be on this call right so there's risk associated with that um i should be close any sellers on this call you probably shouldn't be here we won't tell your boss um, and Cassidy, super unfair because that was like four questions. Um, so I'm going to try to tackle them one we by one. We know you'll pick the easiest of the four. So, <laughs> but, you know, give it your best shot. Yeah, I will. Um, going to the end of the quarter, I'm thinking about two things. I think I can, I, or I'm not thinking about two things. I'll bucket what I'm thinking about into two buckets or two categories. And that's like short term and long term. A mistake I see a lot of companies make and our, some of our customers make is a, a lot of us may be missing or, you know, or forecasted or about to or pacing to miss our Q3. So Q4 will look a lot like a fire drill. It'll look like uh, a lot of desperation. Um, it'll look like a lot of short term kind of short, smaller mindset types of uh, practices. So I think like just being able to step back and remember that business just overall is a long game and we don't want to harm the start to 2023 or forget that 2023 is right around the corner um, with a bunch of like really short-term minded tactics, high pressure selling, heavy discounting, um, you know, lots of like super high volume outbound. These are things that companies are going to like knee jerk reaction, probably lean into. Um, and I would say shy away from that. Right. So Short term, what we're doing here at Refine Labs um, is we're going to look back, right? All of the conversations that we had, close loss deals, maybe work through um, some of that. We're also going to like, like, let's look at like, I think sales leaders should be looking at 
stepping into the trenches a little bit more with their sellers. Their sellers need a lot of support. So executive muscle, executive presence on more sales calls and being more customer facing um, and supporting sellers in that way is another um, lever that I think sales leaders should should pull. Okay, so last short term lever pull that I'm thinking to is comp. And I know this is like a little dicey to talk about comp, but what I don't want, or I wouldn't want if I was like a SaaS leader, um, sales leader is I wouldn't want like, some reps are going to be missing their number potentially in Q4. Stuff is hard, right? Buyers are very risk averse. So do we need to revisit comp and make sure that my top sellers, even if they're going to be missing or it's going to be a lot more difficult, I want to make sure that they're being comped properly. And that might require adjusting bases that might be, require like spiffs or bonuses um, so that they can continue to get paid and they don't go and leave. And then I'm screwed in Q1 and I have to like hire a whole new sales team simply because we had a hard Q3 and Q4. So those are some of the short term things I'm thinking about. And to bucket those are just, you know, comp, um, revisiting past conversations, et cetera. Um, and long term thinking, right? The one thing I'll say here so I don't take the whole time is just how can we uh prevent q1 from being like q3 or q4 right what are some of the things that we should be doing now in q4 to set us up for a really powerful 2023 or start to it um and so anyways high level that's what i'm thinking feel free to drop any other questions um around this happy to address them in the chat so i heard a few themes from carl i heard uh comp loud and clear i think that's a signal to me um and i heard um setting kind of the caveats for missing the quarter is that what i heard sales guy yep that's what you heard <laughs> just giving carl a hard time yeah um i love carl on these episodes so we can kind of get the flavor for like how sales thinks for those who are not in sales on this on this call so feel free to ask your specific questions to carl in the chat and we'll make sure we get back to him um, we have a bunch of questions coming in. I want to go to Grant for his question. I thought it was a good one. I think they're all good ones, but um, I'm a big fan of Grant of you on LinkedIn. So um, let me see if I can unmute you. There we go. Thanks, Cassidy. So my question is around annual planning and forecasting. I listened to the recent podcast you did on that. And it's similar to the methodology I've used in the past, you know, I thought about saying if you spend X percent more um, and you ask for more budget, then we can expect to get, call it X percent minus Y, knowing it doesn't um, happen exactly uh, in that way. There's diminishing returns, but you can say there will be a direct increase in pipeline and revenue. And you can build that in the models, say ops, pipe, close one, ARR is going to increase in that kind of estimated percentage. However, when you take a more create demand focused approach, spending won't necessarily mean a correlated increase in pipeline in such a linear way. One, because it takes time to build. And two, you might already be maxed on your audiences in terms of frequency and total uh, reach. So how do you think about modeling that type of strategy? if you're already reaching your whole target audience or you know nearly reaching all of it at the frequency targets you want i think it's only fair to turn this one over to tori cuz i think tori that was your uh podcast episode and this sounds like a particularly hard question so um <laughs> i'd love for you to take a first yeah. shot at that 
Thank you so much, Cassidy. Um, no, this is an, an awesome question, Grant, and, and thank you. By the way, I've been looking at all the questions you've been sending in here. We might have to have like a Grant asks us anything episode because um, <laughs> this is enough question here to get us through. Uh, I think a, a couple of live events here. Um, so yeah, I think uh, you know uh, uh, what what you're referring to, right? This this kind of demand planning model. I think um, Allison and I had had walked through it on a, a stacking growth episode, um, and so like. My answer actually is going to be, you know, a little bit broader than just the demand planning model, right? So um, you're 100% correct. You can't just use a, uh, you know, um, dollars in, dollars out expectation that, you know, if we put $10 in this year and got $100 back, next year, if we put in $20, we're going to get $200 back, right? We all know that it's, it's, it doesn't work that way. As much as our, our uh, you know, CFOs might, might, uh, might want it to work that way, we know that it doesn't. Um, and so I think the, the better way to approach it, right, is to really kind of think about like um, your, you know, your, your all-up number that you have. Uh, understanding, of course, you know, uh, what percentage of that marketing is going to be responsible for that, that marketing source revenue. Um, and kind of, you know, looking at it in, in terms of the, uh, the top line, that marketing source revenue. Um, and looking at, you know, of course, your historicals, let's say, from the past year in terms of uh, not just the ad spend, which should play a factor in there, but also, um, you know, the the demos that you generated, uh, the opportunities that were created from that, the, the hero pipeline, right, so the high intent revenue opportunities, and then close one, and looking at those, um, you know, percentages in between each of those points in your funnel. And so ultimately, what you're looking at now is, um, you know, these are effectively all of the different levers that you can have an impact over that you can pull over the course of the year to figure out like, how am I going to ultimately make up the, the delta between what we achieved this past year and what we're looking to achieve next year. Um, and so when you, when you break it down this way, right, you're going to see things like, okay, you know, we looked at, we got a hundred demos last year. Uh, and we know that, you know, that ultimately led to X amount of revenue. Um, so, you know, what is the, the, uh, the demo volume that we might need next year? That's one way to look at it, right? That's one lever you can pull. Um, but additionally, I think it's also makes sense for you to look at things from a, a broader perspective and say, okay, you know, we're also looking at, uh, the demo to opportunity conversion rate. Um, and when you take a look at your demo to opportunity conversion rate, there's a number of things that could have an impact on that specific conversion rate, on that, that lever that you can pull. Um, maybe it's your inbound buyer buyer experience. Maybe that there are some uh, you know some focus that you can put on on improving your buying experience. Um, you know the, the the calendar booking function. Uh, you know the 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 speed and the follow up of your your team. The um, you know who you're actually getting to follow up with the people that are putting those inquiries in. All of these things can have an impact on that specific percentage that's going to take you from the demo to. Um, to opportunity. Same can be said when you're looking at opportunities into heroes and of course heroes into closed one. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that I guess my answer here, right, is to almost kind of think a little bit more broadly than just the, um, the, the, the quantitative inputs into this model and, and really kind of think it through of, yes, we can have an impact on demos. Maybe that does come from, uh, you know, some different things that we look to do on paid social or the money that we're spending or channels that we're exploring. But you also want to be focused on the other parts of the funnel just the same and figure out what levers you can pull and specifically what tactics um, you know, uh, you're going to be um, placing your bets on in the year ahead 
to to be able to, to help you pull those levers. Um, so maybe a little bit of a roundabout answer for you there. I know that you were asking about the demand models and, and those inputs and outputs specifically, but um, I think when you're talking about something like annual planning, right? And we know as marketers that so much can change over the course of one year uh, that it does make more sense to kind of look at things a little bit more holistically. Um, and that might mean, you know, teaming up with your events team, if you have one of those, or, uh, you know, um, the, the SERs and AEs to figure out, uh, you know, the best way that you can kind of um, create that that seamless handoff between the hand raiser and, and that first meeting. Uh, but I, I think that that's probably the better way to be looking at um, trying to close the gap between your, uh, you know, your your previous year's performance and what the expectations are for the next year, uh, and not so much of just say, you know, dollars in dollars out formula. Yeah, I don't build on that real quick, Tori, a little bit. Um, and Grant, just to answer or just to kind of think about it, this is what we're doing with clients. A lot of clients right now is thinking about what is the, from a paid perspective, right? A lot of what we talk about is paid growth, paid contribution to demos, paid contribution to revenue. But there's an element of this organic component too that comes with that. So at what point can you see a correlation between, let's say we invested, you know, 30 grand in paid, have we seen an uptick in organic direct traffic? And can we draw a correlation or assume that there's a percentage there too, that that percentage of traffic, what converts into a demo, an opportunity? So I think that kind of spreads a bit wider too, when you think about like, we don't want this narrow focus of just paid, knowing what we're doing a lot of the times is educated and influencing. So they're going to come through these other channels. So kind of zooming out a little bit further too, to look at that organic input. Hey, hey, Grant, I unmuted you in case you want to follow up with anything on that. Yeah, I appreciate those insights. Thanks for, for sharing both. Looking at that demo to op is something in particular that we've started doing more and just yesterday had a meeting for five strategies we're going to take to improve that and i think including things like that in our annual planning model is a good call out excellent good question um evan you hit on something there that i want to kind of tie back to um, a question we have here from connor it seems like I'll kind of paraphrase this. Their team has started with LinkedIn organic and they're now testing LinkedIn paid. So kind of our philosophy, non, non-click content. How do you know paid's working versus kind of organic in terms, you know, think of uh, self-reported attribution and people coming in saying LinkedIn as an example. Um, I, I assume we see this quite a bit with our, our clients. So thoughts on that? Yeah, we did. And it's such a good question. And it's one that we don't have a perfect answer to, right? Because it is hard when people self-report out just more of a generic LinkedIn or search or any sort of paid platform we might be using. Um, one thing to think about, though, is LinkedIn organic is such, there's a significantly smaller reach at scale when you post them organic. So even though you might be posting a flywheel every two to four days or two to four times in a week, there's still a small subset of that audience that's going to truly see that message. So when we start to accelerate and put paid into it, you're accelerating that reach. And that's oftentimes where we'll start to see the correlation of, okay, we had paid running for about six weeks, or excuse me, organic running for about six weeks. We introduced paid for about four. Do we start seeing more mentions of LinkedIn after that paid has been launched? And that's where we really start to tie back. Like we can, again, it's making assumptions, but we have to in this scenario. Can we see that actually our 
increased efforts of driving paid ads. We're seeing an increased volume of people self-reporting LinkedIn as the driver there. So it's a, a bit of a hard question to answer specifically, but that's how we've been looking at it, almost stair-stepping with clients. What are the different levers that we've been pulling on LinkedIn? Let's say we have employee advocacy, we get more employees involved, we have the brand posting more, and we're introducing LinkedIn. What are those stair-stepping components? And are we seeing like more and more self-reported attribution like kind of tie closely to those efforts? And happy to answer a follow-up there. I know it's a, not necessarily the best response, but it's a question we ask all the time here at Refine Labs. That's great. Yeah, Connor, feel free to drop, drop any follow-up on that. Um, I appreciate that, Evan. I got I got to follow up on that. I'm just curious. Like, I assume at some point we've baseline. This is, in this case, you've started with organic. There is a level of like, I, I'm thinking this is like analogy could be our business, where a lot of our most of our demand comes organically. You kind of know over time like how that trends and moves based on like the programs you're running. And then I assume when you overlay a paid strategy, you should be able to see a delta. And you should be able to kind of manage kind of the, I know this is kind of like speculation, but is this something that you recommend or do you think it's too flawed and kind of thinking through? We know if we have one lever of growth being organic and we're running a program that looks like X and we haven't made major changes to that, it's on a given trajectory. And then we layer on the next program to stack growth. We should be able to see the difference between those two. And if we don't see any difference, then wouldn't we assume that uh, given enough time, the paid strategy is not working? Yeah, I was going to say that's the, that's one of the challenges a lot of times is people cast too wide of a net with their paid strategy. So they build on their LinkedIn organic efforts, but they might not be seeing that volume increase after that paid strategy. And that's because they're typically what we see is that the ICP is too broad. So they're really not influencing that audience that's truly a high intent hand raiser. So they might not actually be self-reporting LinkedIn because you're getting impressions on an audience that is not ready to buy. So I think if you are not seeing that growth or not seeing that kind of that incremental gain from a self-reported standpoint, maybe reevaluate your audience. Who are you targeting? How big is that TAM? And is that something that maybe you should reevaluate when you look at who's coming in, raising their hands? What are their job titles? Does it make sense? And is there a, kind of a mirrored uh, feedback loop into that strategy? Excellent. Thank you. Um, Keep dropping in the questions. I will be calling on folks or um, seeing if you're comfortable coming on. Um, I have a question uh, that's come up um, multiple times and I'm going to direct this at Victoria. And that is, how do we think about, as we plan going forward, we often talk about net new growth in kind of customer bases. But there's also this kind of strategy around like retention, churn, upselling, um, current customer bases. From kind of a standpoint of planning as we think through that, how would you recommend folks consider that in terms of like a work that they may want to do in Q4 to kind of set themselves up for like a plan in the following year, if that makes any sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I It actually sort of relates to one of Omar's questions or, or someone's question around pulling um, deals forward into Q4. And if you're scrambling to just get a lot of deal flow in and you're just promising, I mean, I'm 
Refine Labs is less like this. Past companies I've been at are certainly like this, where you'll just promise anything and everything to get the deal closed. And then you get into this situation starting, you know, day one of the engagement where your promises are not necessarily mapping to reality or what your team is able or thought they were going to execute on is not, you know, aligned with how they're used to working. And so um, this quarter in, in particular, but in general, is a good moment to say, you know, how are our existing clients experiencing their relationship with us? Are we getting, a, are we feeling like we generally have the way to satisfy clients to execute on our promises to service their needs? Um, or are we finding that there's, there's tensions there or what we thought we were supposed to do is not what they thought they were getting because um, sales can do, you know, can bust their ass to get a million deals in the door in Q4. But if you start January with a really slippery slope and then you start fighting these battles of, Instead of having a leaky bucket to retain all these clients next year, sales is continuing to add more work to the business versus having to plug these gaps of people who aren't happy. So I guess a couple of ways to, I'm thinking particularly at this time of year and this role and in past roles, it became, became really helpful from a product marketing and sales enablement perspective to lean in and be, you know, the right hand man for the sales team, because you're hearing, look, this messaging for some reason isn't resonating this quarter. Well, this is a high pressure moment. And this is a good, you know, feedback loop that it might be isolated to Q4, but get the insights on why people aren't buying, why the pressure is changing their decision psyche, or it's accelerating their decision to, you know, move forward with you. And then what can you train? How can you translate that to other quarters of the year. Um, there's also elements of what are the questions we're getting, you know, we're trying to move quicker and what's getting in the way of that to close a deal and use all of that to optimize the process, uh, again, to Carl's point, but there are three quarters of the year so that those friction points aren't being hit in Q4. Um, but again, it's also, you know, the questions are, what am I going to get? Or can I see how this works? Or, um, you know, why, why should I choose you versus any other? You can lean on what you're hearing from the retention side of things, what's working with clients, why they're staying with you, why your happy clients are happy to not only screen and find the right people to bring in, but also as part of your sales strategy for this, these are the results we can bring to you. If, you know, you may even need to speak to a reference customer or see some sort of work or example output. Um, so I guess all that to say that if you think about the experience lived inside the door, once you sort of get and capture the customer, it has to align with all the things that are being promised. And that applies in any other quarter of the year or when your sales team is trying to really close uh, deals and, and get things over the line this quarter of the year. So hopefully that answers the question, Cassidy, with some offline thoughts there. Yeah, thanks for that, Victoria. It spurred a question that I, I'm going to ask Carl, actually. And that is, Carl, do you modulate your messaging based on the quarter um, of the year and kind of like what the customer might be thinking uh, in the sales cycle? Uh, I certainly wish that we did to the caliber that Victoria just articulated. Um, but I think that it, I would say the answer is a soft yes, but not as modular as quarterly, right? But I think, and unfortunately, I think sales teams are a little bit reactive because we have to experience pain for six weeks and then we adjust messaging, right? This happened to most of our businesses in Q2, uh, where it was like, you know, revenue and pipeline was falling from the sky and we didn't have baskets big enough to catch it all. And then, you know, April or May hit and it was like dried up. And now everyone is kind of scrambling to shift their messaging and reduce risk and more customer references and kind of jump through all these hoops to 
continue just to close business. So the answer to your question is again, soft yes. Um, how to do that proactively? I don't know if I have an answer to that, but I think like if you can move from a reactive messaging transition to trying to see in, into the future a little bit and get proactive with that using, as Victoria said, customer insights um, from your book of customers and really understanding what pain are they about to experience since we're in CRM with them, since we're having conversations with them, can that help us to look into the next quarter and kind of get inside the minds of uh, the folks in our pipeline that I mean, that is like revenue org 301 type stuff um, that, you know, is fantastic. And we're, no, we were definitely not there yet, but how do we get there? I don't know. Get Victoria on it. I think Victoria can help you. Yeah, I think so too. Um, excellent. So I have a question here from Ashley. I'm going to ask it uh, for her and I'm going to come at, Evan looks like he wants to take this one. We've struggled to get SMEs to collaborate with sales and marketing to provide feedback insight into customer and prospect challenges or FAQs. We're moving down the ladder to boots on the ground to gather this info for content building. What questions do you think would be best to ask our SMEs as we facilitate these calls? So um, I think there's kind of two things here. Like one is any tips or tricks to get SMEs just engaged. And two, if you can't get them engaged, then what can you ask them to at least pull knowledge out of their heads? in order to be able to use that effectively in a content or customer engagement strategy? Uh, I got to chew on this one a little bit. I like this question a lot. Um, Tori, I don't know if you have a, can jump in with any response here, but. Um... Yeah, yeah, I, I got you. Think, think it through there, Evan. Um, so I, I think my, my first reaction is, uh, right, you know, understanding like, uh, and and I guess you know having a little bit of empathy towards those those SMEs. Obviously, you know you're looking at them as as a huge piece of of your efforts and what they're doing. But of course, they very likely also have some other uh, pretty big responsibilities at at your company. And so part of it, I think, is is trying to figure out the the best way to work with them. Um, and maybe it's something as simple as like, hey, you know, uh, can we set up like a thirty or sixty minute Zoom call? Um, I just grabbed like a list of FAQs from our customer success team. Uh, and I would love it if, um, you know, we could just kind of get you riffing on, on some of these ideas, right? And so uh, finding different ways to kind of, you know, maybe capture some of their, their knowledge and insight rather than, um, you know, just hoping that they're going to be uh, available, bought into, um, you know, uh, to kind of jump into whatever, you know, strategy or, or podcasts or live events that, um, you know, that, that you're looking to put on. I think that that's probably uh, one way to do it. But, um, you know, the, the other thing I think to, to look at is like, uh, you know, once you start to, to get some of these, um, you know, let's say positive signals, and it might be few and far between in the beginning, that's okay. Uh, you know, you, you really want to try to do what you can to put it in front of these people and for lack of a better term, stroke the ego a little bit, right? You know, help them understand how important they are to, um, you know, the, the programs that you're trying to put on. Uh, but even if it's something as simple as like a thank you note from um, a prospect that attended or, you know, some really good feedback that you take some snatch, snapshots of on social media, um, you know, make sure you put that in front of them and, and help them understand like, hey, you're really helping me make a difference here. Our, our clients, our prospects are appreciating it. Um, and see if that might be a way to, to you know, kind of fuel the, the fire a little bit. Uh, just because like, I know 
yeah, it can be difficult, um, to, especially depending on the, the the type of the organization, the the SME that you're looking to get involved. Uh, and sometimes it's just a matter of of finding the right working style to um, that's going to mesh with with what you and your team are looking to do, and and you know get that wedge in there and figure out how to kind of grow that relationship over time. There's two things in there I think, Tori, you said that really resonated with me. One is oftentimes when we want to get subject matter experts involved. Um, we don't think about the unnecessary work that we're asking them to do that we could take off their plate. Um, we want them to write something. We want them to post something. We want them to do work versus extracting the insight out of them. And I like how you said that. Just get them on a video call, et cetera. Um, uh, ask them the questions and write it up yourself. Uh, that's a classic content marketing strategy. There's a bunch of things you can do where you're just using the time of the SME to provide the insight, not to do everything else. And I think the second one, which is kind of maybe more advanced, is understanding the motivations of the SME. Do they want to be a LinkedIn influencer? Do they get excited about getting on customer calls? Do they want to be seen as the expert inside their company? So you're going to take that 15-minute video and the five questions they answered, and you're going to promote it within the company. So really trying to understand what motivates that person and then using that to your advantage to get them to do work for you. If I could add something there, because that's that's critical to the sales process. Well, first of all, Cassidy, am I allowed to add something here? You can definitely allow add something, Carl. Always. Appreciate it. So getting SMEs into the sales process too is something that we are big on at Refine Labs. And um um, one thing that is as helpful as well is just to praise like it could be super simple but praise in public a lot of sme work is like very thankless uh is very kind of like it's it's hidden like it's not something that's like spectacularly celebrated with a gong and a dashboard etc it can really fly like under the radar and so just getting good at making sure that you're sending the thank you note that you're praising in a slack channel for help that some you know some sme supported you with not only does that like pump that person up and make them feel good about their contribution but it also creates this culture and kind of this fomo with the other smes that are like dang i want to be like a part of that um i don't know like what tori thinks about that and the reason i call out tori is because he is an sme that I bring onto a lot of my sales conversations. I'm like 100% close rate with Tori right now, you know? And so, um, again, just creating kind of this micro culture of celebrating SMEs and creating a little bit of FOMO, honestly, so that you could kind of loop in other SMEs and, and Tori isn't like on 10 sales calls a week is I think something that on the sales side of the house we've seen success with. Hey, Carl, in your history, have you ever had an SME say no to you in sales? I know this is a struggle marketing, marketers have. I mean, I've felt that struggle as a marketer. But when it comes to sales and calls, like, have you had have you had struggles getting SMEs to support you? Or do you find that um, when push comes to shove and there's a customer on the phone or in person, the SME shows up? Yeah, I, I really can't say that I've ever ha had uh, a no-show uh, on the SME side of the house. But uh, you have to take what I say with a grain of salt here because my whole career, I've pretty much sold to marketing and sales um, leaders. And I think marketers like Tori, are, like they get it, like they're sales-minded. So they, everybody kind of has 
And like when I was at HubSpot and here or Fine Labs, everybody, there's a culture of everybody is selling all the time. I think maybe you might run into that in kind of a more legacy industry or something more technical where you've got maybe like a grumpy developer that's like, I don't like salespeople. I don't want to join sales calls. So maybe there's like a different vibe in some of those industries, but I haven't experienced that myself. And I think that makes sense considering the space that we play in. That's good okay. stuff. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, Kyle, and I think you do a good job, and this is what helps, is you set the expectation of what the deliverable is from that SME, like having people come join the calls, you really kind of outline what the conversation is. Obviously, it can go any direction when you have a conversation, but at least they come in there with a bit of confidence and what's going to be tossed their way. And I think that, that sometimes it's that fear of unknown that can get people to kind of pump the brakes and not want to join those. So just kind of setting the right stage is always helpful. Yeah, that's good feedback. Again, I, I send, you know, a list in Slack to Evan or to Tori and say, hey, this is what we've talked about. Here's some bullet points on this business. They specifically are interested or concerned about or nervous about or want to learn more about XYZ topic, how we handle creative in the feed of LinkedIn, etc. Um, and so, yeah, that's important too to tee up the SME. So there's not like a guessing game. And I think that probably holds true for the content marketing side of the house as well. I would say one thing to add to give Carl some credit here is I don't find you bringing an SME on if it's not a serious conversation. And I think this is one of the things that I've noticed in past companies where a product organization or an engineer is reticent to jump on a customer call because they've been burned by joining calls that weren't serious or were not at an appropriate stage or due diligence has been done and they're far enough along and the questions being asked were serious. And so, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that you got to build the trust with the subject matter expert. You don't want to be, if they give you their time, use it and use it wisely. Um, and then they'll come back and you'll be able to call on them again. It's when you're not using their time wisely or whatever effort they put in doesn't get used that they look at this and they say it's a waste of time and not something I'm going to prioritize. Yeah, a couple of things there uh, from the sales perspective. Like, yeah, you don't want to wear out your welcome. Um, there, there, there's a, there's, there's a transaction happening here. I want to make less withdrawals than deposits, right? Um, so that's 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 critical. And another thing too is I actually like to. This is like a tactic for the sales fam that's on the call right now. But I like to use and gate access to a subject matter expert to gain a commitment from the buyer. So if you want to talk to an SME, you are going. Like I'm going to need something and like I don't just bring on Evan and Tori or Victoria willy nilly onto these calls. Right. So there's an exchange of value that happens or you want to talk to an SME or you want to talk to a customer. I gate customers even more harshly than I need to know that you are extremely serious and there's certain criteria that that you're going to meet. This is where gating content uh is maybe a little bit more uh relevant here uh to where i want to gate access there to gain it so that, again cassie to your point that it's it's serious and that really helps me out if somebody's like oh i don't want to do that like don't worry about bringing tori on yet that's a signal to me that this opportunity is still early stage there's still a lot of risk there's still work to be done and that's okay at least i know and expectations are set awesome I want to hit on this conversation in Slack between Charlton and Victoria on PLG. And I want to bring it up as well because I, I believe we have, I think Tori, you've done, you know, I think you and Allison did some dabbling on a podcast on PLG, but let's 
Let me read this for those who don't see it. So one, is there a past episode where we've talked about strategies for self-reported attribution tied to PLG companies? Um, Charlton's company, 90% of their inbound are PLG versus demo. Plan on adding an onboarding intercom questionnaire that asks the question once they're in the web app or on the signup form. Does this align with your strategy? This question doesn't need to be read live. Oh, well, we read it live. Um, bonus. So I think two things here. I would love you to kind of um, talk to this, Tori, first to you and, and Evan, because I'm sure you've experienced this with our clients. But also then I'll come to Victoria because we are, you're looking into ways we would do this for ourselves, including things like questionnaires and like, how do you segment and, and target the audience or kind of assess, qualify the audience as they come in. Um, so Tori, if you don't mind, I'll turn it over to you uh, first. Charlton, ping me if you want me to unmute you and ask any follow-up, no pressure. Yeah, so first, um, the the episode that Allison and I recorded on uh, on PLG actually came from uh, some frameworks that that Evan had shared with us. So um, I think you know we can definitely go right to the source on this one. Uh, Evan Evan has has probably some some more experience with uh, PLG motions than I do. But related to the self reported attribution question, um, I think uh, you know there's a um, certainly been a lot of, of movement and buzz around just self-reported attribution. How did you hear about us over like the past year or so? Um, certainly, you know, within the, the audience and following that Refine Labs has, because we've been talking about it quite a bit. Uh, but I think, um, you know, companies, people can be fluid in terms of how they ask this question. So the reason I say that is because if this is in fact product-led growth and somebody is inside your web app and is, you know, choosing to upgrade or inquiring about upgrading to a different model or, or maybe moving off of the, the free level onto a, a paid level, um, asking them how they heard about you is not an appropriate question, right? They, they're already uh, you know, a, a user of yours, um, but you can find different, more creative ways to ask that question. Uh, you know, we're working with a, a client right now who um, for whatever reason, you know, all of the responses that we get with their self-reported attribution data um, are often internet or uh, Google which is just not helpful in the slightest. Um, and so, you know, we've been experimenting with some different ways to just ask that question. Uh, they've got like a really fun brand. And so we're, you know, trying some new kind of fun language in, in, in terms of how we're asking that. Um, and so, you know, I would kind of challenge you to, to, to do the same, right? Uh, the insights are going to be valuable if you ask people, you know, where they, they heard about you from or some variation of that. But in this instance, um, I'm not sure asking a question framed that way is, is going to really provide much insight. Uh, and in fact, it might just confuse the person. Um, but, you know, maybe that there are some, some different ways that you can kind of, uh, you know, think about where that person might have um, heard about some of these additional features that they might be upgrading to uh, or, or, or something of that nature. Um, and the, the place that you want to ask that, of course, is on, you know, we refer to it as a high intent form, um, you know, typically referring to the spot on the website where someone's going to come raise their hand, say that they want to talk to sales or get pricing information or whatever your CTA is. Uh, and so I would kind of, you know, say that you should probably think through um, what the right place is for, for adding that, that question so that you can collect insights on that, uh, you know, within your PLG motion are, are going to be. Um, but, you know, 
don't force it in there. I, I think that if there is an appropriate place to ask, it's probably on the front end when you're getting those initial signups and not mm -hmm. so much when you're trying to upgrade someone. Uh, so that's, you know, kind of my, I guess, high level response to that. Evan, I don't know if, if you had some, some additional color you wanted to, to add there. No, I think the, you, one thing that we kind of advocate for, right, is that self-reported attribution, uh, it's a requirement, but we're testing this with the client now. So about 50% of their high intent hand raisers, how we monitor them, right, are coming through this PLG motion. And so there was some concern if we put this question on the front end, would we see a decrease in signups overall? So we are in the middle of an experiment now where we're keeping that form um, a non-requirement or just an open text field. And the results are actually pretty interesting, right? Because we're hearing a lot more about these communities where people are hearing about us that we had missed prior to that. So I think that there's definitely value in testing and experimenting that. I would just agree with you, Tori, like once they're in the web app or they're already kind of familiar with the product, that's not the right question to ask. And I think it's more or less like certain questions that are going to help the team upgrade them or move them further along in their kind of revenue journey, right? So what are those supporting questions that you can ask? Like what features are missing or what what other things can we help with? But those are more qualitative during a discussion and they don't think necessarily in a form. Thanks guys. I want to put you on the spot because I actually listened to this podcast episode and we'll try to find it and drop it in the chat. And one of the things I found um, insightful is this concept of running direct response on a PLG motion versus kind of a brand, more of a brand strategy, which we run predominantly for most of our customers because they are high ACV, long sales cycle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I personally love that idea, but you know, you, I think Tori, you and Allison brought it up and I know this was something you've worked with Evan that might be unusual coming from us as Refine Labs. So I'd love kind of Evan, maybe I'll start back to you on just the thought process around that and the logic. Then Tori, if you have anything you want to jump in on, that'd be great. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons that we think about a direct response motion here is because the audience that you're trying to engage with from a PLG versus kind of a sales-led motion is very different. So the, when we're thinking about a PLG, right, you're, you're advertising to the end user, the person that's actually going to be kind of the advocate for the brand within the company. They're going to be kind of that power user using the product. So they are going to be the champion that's like internalizing the brand and building the brand up within the organization. So I think that that's one area where it's like, we want to get them into the product. We want to get them using the product and we want them to start surfacing results or reports or insights to the team to kind of build that motion. Which is kind of that sales led motion where we typically advocate here at Refine Labs is really about building that brand awareness, that brand affinity. We're starting higher up in the funnel with that buying committee influencing the decision makers there. So it's two different audiences. And if you think about like the end user and the intent of that, that's why to me, like this direct response motion makes the most sense because they're actively going to be hands-on using the product versus a buying committee purchases the product and then pass, cascades it down to, you know, an individual contributor who's going to be doing more of the work. But that's kind of the, the high level summary there. Obviously, we can go a lot further into the details, but I think that it's worth exploring because, again, just rooting it back to the end goal. And that end goal is a user of the product to hopefully move them through the motions of acquisition, activation, adoption, and so forth through the process to drive revenue for the business. Thanks, Evan. Uh, Victoria, anything you want to add that maybe a, a different slant, given that this is something you know, you're going through and evaluating right now for, you know, a brand new product. 
So I'll speak a little less to the attribution side because I think Tori and Evan did a great job there um, other than agreeing that right at the moment, um, you, you know, you're capturing interest or high intent in some capacity is the best place to do that. For us, we have a wait list, which is very helpful for capturing not only intent, but also information and how did you hear about us becomes very intuitive. Um, the other, I guess, lever when you think about product-led growth, um, the two you know common ways you're getting more users is uh through users and coworkers referring the product to each other so you think about slack's motion it becomes um you know my colleague evan told me about it and that's why i'm, I'm registering so there is that motion of like upon sign up or creating an account um it's interesting to see if that comes from a colleague you know in our case again they're sort of an account owner who asks for access so it's not necessarily um, relevant in our case, but something to think about. And then the other piece is, of course, you know, virality or word of mouth. And so if you're hearing that somebody else's post or a friend at some other company is using this thing called Slack, as again, an example, um, that becomes interesting to tell you if it's attribution, not just your own owned either paid or organic efforts, but if you're getting the influence and you're, you know, kind of driving the momentum that you're hopefully um, trying to as a PLG motion. Um, the only other thing I would I would touch on maybe, you know, extended beyond your original question there is around how do you qualify people to be best fits? Um, and it actually kind of goes back to that retention question earlier where you can get a lot of people into your product, but if they're not ultimately successful, if it's not a great fit for them, it can actually backfire again to that word of mouth point where, you know, I saw, I signed up, I tried it, either it wasn't ready, it wasn't right for me, I couldn't see success with it, it took me too long to get to any value. And so I you know, and, and that that kind of becomes your brand versus I've signed in and I, you know, I had a great experience. So, um, you know, probably a longer topic here, but when you think about product qualified leads, something I've been thinking a bit about is as much the product qualifying the user as you qualifying the user to be good for the product. And so, um, you know, I know like sales and um, Carl and Refine Labs do a great job of saying like, look, you're not a good fit for our ICP. We're not going to help you be successful. And so, Maybe we'll continue the conversation, but we'll pick it up down the line. Um, the same thing with products. If you, you know, it's great to get a lot of signups. You know, we're thinking through even the trial motion, but if people aren't going to be able to succeed in the product, it's actually probably not worth the churn or the stress of trying to retain them or the long-term damage of them not having a good experience and talking about it publicly. So um, I would just think about that as, as well as the actual attribution and getting them in the door. That sounds like a great post. I love that, Victoria. Thank you. Um, all right. So <clears throat> I'm going to go to a conversation that we're having in here around organic content. And then I'm going to end the call with, I want the refined labbers to answer a question of what have they learned this year? Um, so this was posed to us as kind of what mistake have we made as a, in refined labs? So mistake or interesting learning in the first nine months of the year. I'm going to come around the horn at the end. First, let's go to this uh, conversation from uh, Thalia. I apologize if I say your name incorrectly, uh, but I like this uh, thought, this thread. Organic content on LinkedIn. We have 1,000 followers and started about a year ago with our startup. What should we focus on? Brand awareness with expertise on the subject in the industry or product features or like what the CEO wants to do, promote new hires and other personal business stuff or all of it at once. I know um, Todd rang in on this. Um, Todd, if you're able to come on, that's great. Otherwise, why don't we go to 
Tori, and you can kind of elaborate on what Todd said and and your twist to it. Uh, yeah, I think um, uh, a great question, um, and you know, some of what Todd was uh, was answering, you know, is is certainly um, uh, I, I'm in, in full agreement with. I think you know, ultimately, what it comes down to with with you know an organic content strategy and, and trying to build that following is, um, you know, we say it all the time at Refine Labs, right? Education is, uh, is, is critical. Um, it needs to be the primary focus of, of what you're doing organically, but, um, but don't forget about the entertainment aspect as well. Uh, and I think actually, you know, Todd is a, a, a great example of this. Um, everything that he has been doing, uh, you know, on TikTok and, and bringing over to, to LinkedIn, um, you know, with some of his, his kind of, you know, uh, video posts that, that he creates, the, the different, you know, characters that he's inventing. Um, it's an incredible way to keep people engaged with your brand and, and build that, that true affinity. Uh, you know, we're also, uh, you also see Todd continuing to kind of dabble in the, the you know, the, the pure educational posts with like a, you know, talking head style video, um, as compared to, you know, more of those, those kind of, you know, characters that, that he's assuming sometimes. Um, and so I think, you know, having a, a mix of those things, right. But, uh, at the end of the day, I think, you know, one of the things that's also of equal importance, um, you know, with education is, is trying to find ways to humanize your brand. Uh, you don't want to just be following, a brand and a logo and and you know the education is is great it's a nice byproduct of of following but um you know to truly build that affinity uh you know it's it's great to kind of show the behind the scenes the people that are are you know making that that company work and and especially at refine labs right you know uh it's all about the people here and so the more that you can kind of put those people front and center um the the better you're going to be uh you know you'll you'll probably see honestly um really high engagement on some of those posts where you are talking about the individuals that work at your company celebrating them and the work that they're doing uh you know or celebrating them on their behalf but whatever the case um you know i i think that that's a really important part of, of an organic strategy uh but what you don't want to do right is just kind of you know get into feature dumping um you know on your organic following uh you know those people chose to follow you for a reason and it's not because they're interested in your, you know your product specs right um so uh, leave that stuff for the, the, you know, the sales collateral, uh, or, or for your, you know, your, your sales team, your customer success team. Um, and don't try to sell people, you know, through your, your organic, uh, posting strategy, um, you know, focus on education, but I, I think entertainment, uh, you know, is, a is a, a really important addition to that as well. Anybody want to add anything to that, Evan? Yeah, I would say just one thing to really center around is like, what is the objective of you, you know, building these followers? What is the goal, right? So it comes back to community building and ultimately how are you building that community? So you're offering value, serving content that's useful. I think one thing that people get fixated on though is attaching a brand to this POV. And it goes much bigger than that when you think about employer advocacy and kind of building that community. So Equally posting through like your handle on LinkedIn from a brand perspective is valuable, but also I encourage you as you build this to have your team start serving useful content as well, right? Because all of that gets that brand exposure out there and then people become interested because they see a similar POV across that brand and start to follow it. So it goes much more than just posting a handle. I would definitely encourage, you know, kind of having a strong POV and centering your message around that. Yeah, I'll add one thing, which... Um... This obviously takes a 
a while to get there. But if you think about like our strategy, and I'm not sure how intentional this is, or just Todd runs it this way, which I think is great. And that is obviously we let our employees go off and talk about whatever they'd like professionally, personally, et cetera. We don't police that. We just, we encourage it. Um, they can share, talk about whatever. But if you look at like the Refine Labs handle, what we do is we curate the best of our employees around a point of view that the company has. And so there's been times where, you know, our talent department has come to us and said, hey, we want to put something on the Refine Labs handle. And we said, no, because that's not how it works. Like post it first, get a lot of traction um, on your personal handle. And then Todd will curate that and kind of put it into kind of the voice of Refine Labs around our point of view. And I'm not sure if Todd can answer this on social media or whatever, but I'm not sure if that was intentional or not, but it's quite effective because it creates a consistency around the brand, the voice, and the point of view. And it leverages um, what we know works, which is what our employees are talking about um, on the platform. So just a little hack, um, if that's helpful. All right. We're about out of time. I'm going to go around the horn. We're going to start uh, with Carl. Haven't heard from him for a while. Um, what did you learn? What have you learned? What's the one learning in the last nine months, Carl? Patrick, you thank you again. I'll go quick. Um, what did I learn in the last nine months or so? You know, from a sales perspective, I think one of the big evolutions that I have made in my mentality from almost 10 years kind of in sales, SaaS sales, et cetera, is just that selling is evolving to becoming more of a team sport, whereas previously it was kind of more of a, a lone wolf type of sport. Um, and I think a couple of mistakes that we had made earlier in the year were just kind of holding on to that lone wolf type of mentality. I was first sales hire, came in and take over things from Chris. And it was tough to let go after I took over selling from Chris and MJ and the, and the executive team and bringing in our, you know, our sales team like Eric, uh, just kind of letting go of like closing deals alone, like working your deals alone. And I think we've evolved to a pretty cool spot to where there's a lot of involvement in the team on, you know, on various opportunities, et cetera. Um, and I think that mistake is just not doing that earlier. And I think it's really timely too, considering just the economic climate, it just strengthens opportunities and, and, and just relationships in general that you build with your customers. So um, that evolution, wish I would have done it earlier. Thanks, Carl. Uh, Evan. Yeah, I would think similar to an evolution standpoint, right? With how we worked with all of our clients, we experienced so much change over the last nine months, right? We saw the highest of highs and some, some of the lowest of lows with some of the clients we worked with. So this last nine months really challenged me to continue to pivot and think differently, right? So we work with all different client sizes. We work with different sales cycle lengths with different complexities. And so each one of those, right, this playbook notion or this building, this like demand creation strategy had to evolve and pivot quickly. And so that's one thing of just reacting quickly, but still maintaining that long-term focus has been a challenge for myself, right? Because as marketers, especially when we enter Q4, we're reactionary, we're execution. That's all we want to do. But really trying to think like, how does our short-term focus impact long-term growth? And so trying to push back on people that really wanted to drive volume and high end, you know, just lead, lead, lead in Q3 when things were tough. Some of those companies that did that, we've seen like kind of this fall off in terms of like our long-term momentum. So I think it's just continuing to teach myself how to have 
be okay with that change and have better conversations with myself about how to position the message and make sure that we build that long-term momentum. Yeah, appreciate that, Evan. Uh, Tori. Uh, yeah, for me, I think it's about um, uh, uh, learning how and, and watching companies, you know, really kind of self-identify on the spectrum of like, are you, um, are you a must have for like business continuity or your product or are you a nice to have and, and effectively expendable? Um, and, you know, the economic climate has really brought about, uh, you know, some, some uh, really tough questions that companies have to answer. But if you can answer that question fairly, right? Like, am I a vitamin? Am I a painkiller? Um, you know, uh, if you can answer that question effectively, it can inform your marketing strategy. And there are very different strategies based on where you fall in that spectrum. Um, for those companies that, that you know, are true, uh, you know, business continuity um, offering software platform, whatever, uh, they can kind of continue business as usual. And for those that are more expendable, maybe they need to, to focus more on like retention and, and upselling and cross-selling their existing customer base. But knowing where you fall on that spectrum is, is really important, especially right now as, as spending is tightening up um, and being able to kind of look in the mirror and, and answer that question uh, can really help inform your strategy. Thanks, Tori. And then Victoria. Yeah, um, two two things that um, have become very useful in the last couple of months. Um, well, I've been here for six, so I can't even comment on the last nine. But um, the first is that just you know we talk about it a lot, but do something instead of um, you know worrying about extensive plans in place. And obviously, there's budget considerations sometimes. But if you have a hunch that either um, you know, a message, for example, might work better in Q4 versus other quarters, or you need to try the, you know, painkiller versus vitamin tactic in your talk track or your think LinkedIn or TikTok or whatever. I think it's figuring out a way to experiment and, you know, to the question earlier about being a junior team member, um, this is something you can consider as well. Just try, try something and get some data points, which leads to my second piece around having come from a very market research background in the formal sense, um, there's a lot of ways you can get signals from the market. And especially as we've been trying to launch something new and understand motions and audiences and ICPs and price points and packaging and messaging and all of these things, you're never going to have a perfect experiment, but um, look for the places and get creative around where you can find signals or data or, um, you know, feedback that will help you inform your strategy. And those two things combined, you don't have to have um, you know, such a process, such a plan, such a research motion stood up, but you can, you know, get the right signals to move in the right direction and then eventually formalize things, um, you know, in line with our R&D philosophy. But I think there's, we, we can get ourselves bogged down with too much of the formality and uh, you can miss a lot of opportunity because our buyers and the, the market out there is changing quickly. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. I'll add one that I've learned, um, and that is, the power of a subject matter expert in the sales process in a slightly different way. And that is the top seller in Carl's team never sold before he stepped into the role, but he was an expert in demand gen. And so when you think about who our audience is and who we're building trust with, and we're, um, and we're not exactly an inexpensive service to acquire, uh, you know, the relationship, it's all about relationship, trust, expertise. And bringing somebody into the sales process who's done the role before and can talk to senior level marketers or revenue leaders about it has been instrumental. And that's something that I don't think it's enough uh, talk about on um, the socials, 
Uh, Carl certainly talked about it, um, and we have on the podcast. We'll be talking about it more. But it's been amazingly impactful to our business and something that we'll continue to replicate. All right, everybody, thanks for joining and sticking with us. Um, really appreciate all the questions. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, you can find all episodes on the podcast and on YouTube. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.